This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Based on five years of research and hundreds of interviews, Lawrence Wright's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Looming Tower, tracks the growth of Islamic fundamentalism, the rise of al-Qaeda, and the intelligence failures that culminated in the attacks on the World Trade Center. Wright is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a fellow at the Center on Law and Security at New York University School of Law. He will be here this coming Monday, November 5th, in Los Angeles at the James Bridges Theater as part of the Writer's Block series. Lawrence Wright, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks. It's a pleasure. How are you doing today? Great. Very good. Uh, let's start off right away. How did you come up with the title, The Looming Tower? That's a quote from somewhere. Could you explain that a little? I was going through some court documents in Germany having to do with the hijackers. And on their computer in Hamburg, uh, the German authorities found a speech by bin Laden. And in there, three times he quotes this verse in the Koran, Death will find you even in the looming tower. And it seemed to be a signal to the hijackers to go ahead. And uh, just such a resonant phrase, I decided that I would use it as my title. Was there any other mention of the looming tower in any of other of uh, Bin Laden's speeches? I mean, is this a theme that plays out? Yeah, back in uh, 1982, when uh, the Israelis went into Lebanon, uh, Bin Laden wrote that uh, he was very affected by the sight of the destruction of Lebanon and that he thought that the looming towers of the West should also be brought down. Mm. Now, now you lived in the Middle East, and uh, you taught English at the university in Cairo, American University, for two years. How did that prepare you for this book? Well, first of all, I was, you know, got to be acquainted with, uh, you know, a lot of Arabs and Egyptians and uh, with Islam, uh, but and I studied Arabic. Uh, but two years of living in a, in Egypt, I you know I just really loved that place. Honestly, I had a great time there, and it was, I suppose, especially distressing for me to see that that part of the world, uh, which I had developed such a fondness for, was attacking my own culture. Is there anything in particular? Is it the people that you love there? Or the yes, climate? and the sense of humor. The Egyptians uh-huh. are the, they have the best sense of humor. If you if you go an entire day without a single joke in, in Egypt, that's really rare. Really? Well, how would you compare it to our sense of humor? <laughs> well, I think, I think Americans have a good sense of humor, but I lived for a while in Saudi Arabia while I was working on this book, and... Uh, I the first time I was there, I was there for three months, and I didn't hear a single joke. And uh, I so finally, when I went back the next time, um, I uh, I kept asking Saudis if they they told jokes, and you know, especially Saudi jokes. And oh yeah, we tell them all the time. Well, give me an example. And finally, I got one Saudi joke, and this is the joke. Uh, and a, a, a and a, see, it goes an Ethiopian and an Egyptian and a Saudi are asked, "What is your opinion of eating meat?" And the Ethiopian says, "What do you mean eating?" And the Egyptian says, "What is meat?" And the Saudi says, "What's an opinion?" <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I think that joke tells you a lot well, about Saudis and their view of their own society. 
It's interesting the way jokes can be sort of uh, an anthropological, uh, you know, dissertation in some ways about. Yeah. Um, now you you were in you, you mentioned you were in Saudi Arabia. Was that when you were uh, you were editing a, uh, a a newspaper in Saudi Arabia at one point? You know the Saudis wouldn't let me in as a journalist, and I for more than a year, nearly a year and a half after nine eleven, I kept making application for a visa, and they. And finally, it became really clear that they weren't going to let me in as a journalist. And so I took a job. I became an expat worker, and my job was mentoring young reporters at the Saudi Gazette, this English-language daily in Jeddah, which is Osama bin Laden's hometown. Right. And it was the best piece of bad luck because instead of being in a hotel room making calls, and I had an apartment, I had a, a car, I had a job I had to go to every day, and I had all these young Saudi reporters teaching me so much more about their society than I could ever have learned otherwise. It was really chastening in some ways. Well, in, in so many ways we think of, um, and I think rightfully, uh, we think of the Saudi culture as certainly politically pretty shut down. Um, what was it about the Saudi culture that you found that sort of broke some of the stereotypes that uh, we Americans would have? Well, for one thing, I, I all of my reporters were depressed. Um, and, in fact, depression is one of the most common things that I ran into in Saudi Arabia. And, of course, it makes sense when you think about what a barren society is. There's no civil society really at all. There's no movies, no theaters, no plays, no political parties, no uh, very few parks or museums. I mean, it's very arid culture. And as a consequence, people are really depressed. One of my reporters did a story about a study of depression that was done at King Abdulaziz University, which is bin Laden's alma mater. And he found that of the 2,000 students surveyed, 65% of the boys and 72% of the girls showed symptoms of depression. And 7% of the girls, strict Muslim society, admitted that they had attempted suicide. Mm. That was really surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Now, now, when was this? When was this story written? This was in uh, 2003 when I was in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, we're speaking with Lawrence Wright, and the book is The Looming Tower. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, book. Did uh, You were trying to get into Saudi Arabia to find out. You sent, you've mentioned bin Laden twice, and certainly the book uh, is The Looming Tower is uh, quite a bit about what happened, the lead-up to uh, the nine, to 9-11. Was that the purpose, was to get into Saudi Arabia to kind of shadow or find out more about bin Laden and, and, and a culture that would have produced bin Laden? Yes, I... I was desperate to get in, and uh, the, you know, I, I, I knew I could not do the book if I didn't have access to the country and the culture, uh, and it was really lucky on my part to find that job. I was, uh, I, especially that particular job, mm -hmm. because I had these young reporters that I could assign stories to, yeah. and uh, they, you know, stories that I might not be able to report myself. They could do for me. It was terrific fun. Yeah. It sounds like you had a group of interns there working for you on the, yeah. on the book. That's that's wonderful. Now, but also experts on their own society, so that they could, you know, I, I was constantly being educated by them about their own society, and that I, I, you know, that was the thing I think that was so key about being there as a as a as a worker and not just as a reporter. Before we get into the book, I just want to ask you one more question outside. Uh, in writing 
the screenplay and the story for the movie The Siege. Uh, what did you bring from that experience to the book? Well, honestly, that was a, an unnerving experience for me. I was the co-writer of this movie, The Siege, which uh, came out in 1998 and three years before 9-11. And you may remember that there were a lot of Arab and Muslim protesters picketing the theaters when the movie came out because they were sick of being portrayed as terrorists. But unfortunately, this was not a stereotypical movie. I thought it was a very sophisticated look uh, at you know the the question of what would happen if terrorism came to our country. How would we react? Right. And uh, so after 9/11, it was the most rented movie in America. <laughs> so it made me the first profiteer in the war on terror. Yeah, I I remember, and I thought uh, one of the nice literary devices that you used was with the uh, Tony Chaloub's character. Yeah, you you've in, you introduced a, a sympathetic Arab character, and as far what, as I know, he's the you know the first Arab American hero in any m- movie made in Hollywood. Uh, right, and I don't know of any sense. Right. So I thought right. that was particularly galling to me, given you know Tony, who is of Lebanese extraction, had never had the opportunity to play an Arab in his very diverse uh, acting career. A terrific actor, yeah, in his own right. Let's get to the book and uh, a little more detail. Uh, for those of you who do not know, why don't you tell us what Al-Qaeda actually means? What is the translation of Al-Qaeda? And how, what's the, the significance? Base. I'm sorry? The base. The base. And it can be termed, you know, like a military base or a database. Uh, the plural, Qaedat, means grammar. So you can see that, you know, it has to do with the rules, with the base, with the bottom, you know, the fundament of, you know, this of anything. But it seems to have been... Uh, initially just a reference to the the base that bin Laden had a camp he had in uh, in Afghanistan but it then began to be applied to the group itself and just and just to take this further where did it where is the sort of the philosophical underpinnings and you get into the uh, the gentleman from Egypt who who really is the mm-hmm. sort of philosophical king of, of Al-Qaeda. Once you get Saeed Qutb? Yeah, Saeed Qutb was the, uh, the Islamist philosopher who wrote the book that everybody read. It was called Ma'alam Filtariq, or Signposts, uh, Milestones. Um, he came to America in 1948, and he, uh, it was a time when America's standing in the world, and especially in the Muslim world, was never higher. And yet he hated everything about America. Uh, he hated the, um, you know, he hated the women because they were so sexually threatening to him. He was a middle-aged, teetotaling virgin, and um, the, uh, you know, the, his presence, you know, among these very aggressive, uh, assertive American women. Uh, when he writes about them, you can. You know, the lust almost drips off the page, but, you know, he's also really horrified. He was horrified by the race, uh, racial matters in America. He was a very dark Egyptian, and uh, he I, he felt extremely threatened by the racism that was prevalent in America then. But everything about America, even the way he got his hair cut, he just, you know, he had one complaint after another. Mm-hmm. And he went back and wrote some influential articles but he also wrote a book, that book I mentioned, that he wrote in prison. Uh, and in there, he talked about how uh, there is no such thing as a Muslim society, a true Muslim society, that 
Islam has gone back to the days of barbarism that existed before the Prophet, that Muslims need to rise up and overthrow the secular governments that are in control and establish this Islamic theocracy so that Muslims can live in a true Muslim society. And that book got out of prison through leaked, you know, it was leaked out in bits and pieces and became a sensation. And Nasser, the president of Egypt, hanged him in 1966. But by that time, there was a young man named Ayman al-Zawahri, who was, uh, his uncle, as a matter of fact, was uh, Said Qutb's protege and lawyer. And Zawahri read that book. And in 1966, he started a cell to overthrow the Egyptian government. He was 15 years old. He's the guy mm-hmm. that became the chief propagandist and organizer of al-Qaeda. He's the one that spotted the young bin Laden in Afghanistan and surrounded him with his Egyptian terrorist group. And it's really al-Qaeda from that day until today is really an Egyptian organization with a Saudi head. Now, it was what gave, I'm going to put Qutub? Said Qutub, yeah. Gave him the, the sort of the... Uh, the uh, one of my trade gravitas was that he had been to America. What was it that ge- was particularly about him? Was it that he had been here and that he had sort of seen the secular world of America and was horrified mm-hmm. by this? Is that why he, his his uh, words resonated so much? I think one reason is that the the Muslim world felt very you know very defeated uh and it had been defeated you know especially going back to the world war 1 and the end of the ottoman empire the the abolishing of the caliphate uh there was a general sense among many muslims not just radicals that islam was in retreat and America was ascendant. When he came to America in 1948, America had half of the world's wealth in one country. And it was an overwhelming victory by the West. I think for Qutb and then for many of his heirs, the retreat into radical Islam was an answer to this, you know, this this Western superiority. If the West has done so well, it's and we have done so poorly. Why is that? And the answer he gave is that we have strayed from the original path that the Prophet laid out for us. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, you know, when Islam was created, it, was, it became an explosive uh, force in world affairs. Mm-hmm. And within a few centuries, it had gone from this little desert religion to extending from Arabia to Spain to southern China. It was a, a, a great empire. And unfortunately, the the, uh, the one of the reasons why I say unfortunately, one of the reasons why the, these words resonated was, in fact, many of the governments of the Middle East were, in fact, installed by Western powers, and there was a and so there was the legitimate it gave legitimacy to the things that were being said, didn't it? Yeah, it, there's there's two sides to that. We have supported autocrats, and you know, and certainly the Europeans after World War One carved up. Uh, the Arab world in uh, in a way that suited their own interests. At the same time, remember that Saudi Arabia, for instance, has never been colonized. It was a great empire itself. It was a great colonizer. So there is, at the same time, there is this resentment for the colonization and the uh, the influence that the West has had on uh, Arab affairs. There's a nostalgia for the lost empire as well. Mm-hmm. 
let's talk a little bit about John O'Neill. Right. Let's let's flip things around here into the United States. Uh, can you just tell us about his character and how his life was going? Uh, you know, up up until uh, say the year two thousand or so, before things get rolling. You know, he was such a fascinating guy. I when after nine eleven, and I was desperately trying to find a way to write about this vast tragedy and make it human somehow. I was going through the obituaries that were streaming online, and I found on the Washington Post site this mention of John O'Neill, who had been the head of counterterrorism for the FBI's office in New York, and he was in charge of getting bin Laden. And he had been washed out of the Bureau because he had taken classified information out of the office, which was true. But he was, you know, his vindictive uh, superiors leaked that information to uh, the press. And he had to take another job, and he became the head of security at the World Trade Center very shortly before 9-11. So instead of getting bin Laden, bin Laden got him. And I, I saw it then as an ironic story, you know, in, in a way, you know, that it will help me t- take the reader into this world of counterterrorism and explain why we failed. But now that I've looked into John's life, he was a, you know, he was in many ways a prophet. He was a, a very lonely voice speaking out about the danger of al-Qaeda and of bin Laden and, and the threat that they really posed to the homeland. Very few people were saying that. Now, you know, I look upon his tragedy as something sort of Greek, not ironic. He he told his friends and co-workers when they heard that he was going to work at the World Trade Center, well, you'll be safe now, John, because they already struck that building. And he told on several occasions, he said, no, no, they'll be back. They'll finish the job. Mm. So he instinctively placed himself at ground zero. I w- well, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Lawrence Wright, the book is The Looming Tower. Um, I do want to, t- we're running so low on, low on time here, I want to jump ahead. Uh, the uh, Why is it, we haven't even mentioned bin Laden, and I do want to t- at least touch on him, why have we not been able to capture bin Laden? What, into your, I mean, I know John O'Neill was obsessed with this idea. I know we've come close. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in fact, uh, you have to help me out here. Did O'Neill himself... There were a couple of points in his investigation into bin Laden where they came pretty close to getting him. Well, Why haven't we been able to capture Osama bin Laden? You know, there, there are a lot of reasons, but one is that uh, we don't have the political will to go in and get him. I mean, it's not a mystery about where he is. I mean, nearly everybody in the intelligence community agrees that he is probably in the tribal areas of Pakistan. Right, in Tora Bora. So. And not in, no, in oh, Pakistan, in the Pakistan. tribal, in Waziristan. Okay. Um, but, and it's, it's a very rugged uh, section of the world, and, you know, it's difficult to penetrate. But essentially, it's not infinite. And, um, and so, in general way, uh, we have an idea of where he must be. But there is a great deal of anxiety on the part of the intelligence community about destabilizing Pakistan, which they see as, in some respects, a greater threat than al-Qaeda. A nuclear nuclear, uh, nation. Yes, it's a nuclear nation with, with a lot of radical elements. And the fear inside the policy and intelligence communities is that, you know, suppose you went in and got bin Laden or didn't get him, which is more likely, um, 
the uh, but you wound up destabilizing Pakistan, having a radical Muslim group come to power with the bomb. Uh, then where are you? You know. Mm-hmm. So that's in many respects, I think, the reason we haven't gotten Bin Laden is that we're essentially paralyzed. Well, apparently, within the Pakistani army, there are within the rank and file of the officer corps a lot of these radical elements, and there is a real fear, as you're describing, of them seizing control of the military and destabilizing, at least from our perspective, destabilizing the country. I've always wondered, really from sort of a more practical point of view, if in fact we were to capture bin Laden, where in the heck would we keep him that would be in some way safe? I mean, where where on the planet would he be considered a safe prisoner? You know, I, I was asked by the CIA if I would write a scenario yeah. about what would we do if we caught bin Laden. And I said, you know, I'm a, I am a screenwriter, but I'm also a reporter, and I can't go writing screenplays for the CIA. But I'll tell you in, the, in, the, in, in, a, in terms of an op-ed in the New York Times what I think. If you catch bin Laden, if you're that lucky, um, first of all, remember, he is the most famous man in the world now. Yeah. He's going to be one of the most famous men in history. So you can't just deal with bin Laden, the man. You have to deal with bin Ladenism. Yeah. And so if you catch him, don't bring him to, don't kill him, first of all, because right. that'll make him a martyr, and that's what he seeks, and it'll seal his legacy forever. Right. Don't bring him to America, not right away. Take him, first of all, to Kenya. Where on August 7, 1998, he set off a bomb in front of an American embassy and killed 211 people. More than 150 people were blinded by the flying glass. Let him sit in a courtroom in Nairobi and tell 150 blind Africans that he was just striking at a symbol of American power. Mm-hmm. Then you could take him to Tanzania, where on the same day he set off another bomb, killing 11 people, all of them Muslims. Al-Qaeda excuses that because it was Friday and good Muslims would be in the mosque. Mm. What a good opportunity to ask, what is a good Muslim? Then you can bring him to America and have him answer for the death of 17 sailors on the USS Cole and the 3,000 Americans that died on 9-11. And after that, you could take him to so many places, Madrid, Casablanca, London, uh, Bali. But just take him one last place. Take him home. Take him to his homeland of Saudi Arabia and try him under Sharia law, the only law he and his followers would respect. And hundreds of Saudis and expat workers have died at the hands of al-Qaeda there. If he's convicted, he'll be taken to a a square in downtown Riyadh called Chop Chop Square. And the executioner is a big man with a long sword. And it's Saudi tradition for the executioner to go out and speak to the audience who are composed of the families of the victims of the condemned man and to beg them to forgive him. And if they can't do that, then the executioner does his job and bin Laden will be taken and buried in an unmarked Wahhabi graveyard. And I think in that way you could begin to roll back some of this awful legacy of his. Well, Lawrence, right on that uh, on that happy note, I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but on that note, I want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Looming Tower. Lawrence Wright, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. 
and this is Weekly Signals.